Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Atlantic Council. I'm Paula Dobriansky. I'm on the Executive Committee of the Atlantic Council Board. And I really want to commend the uh, Council's Dinu Patricio Eurasia Center for today's program, which is entitled The State of Human Rights in Putin's Russia. As many of you know, the center has been extremely active and a vigorous voice on a range of issues from Russia's disinformation to the issue of Ukraine, the uh, scale and scope of uh, the aggression in Ukraine, and the illegal annexation of Crimea. Today's forum is particularly timing, timely. Russia has experienced the worst crackdown in human rights in decades. And we have three keynote speakers who will be up first, and all of whom are making a difference in their own way. They're strong, outspoken advocates for freedom and basic human rights in Russia. I'm going to introduce the first three, and then we'll be having a panel afterwards which will be moderated by Dr. Alina Polyakova of the Atlantic Council. And she'll introduce the panelists. But first, we're going to be hearing, I'm going to introduce all three. We're going to be hearing first from uh, Maryland senior senator, Ben Cardin, a uh, ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who just this week condemned the arrests of hundreds of peaceful demonstrators in Moscow. He is a co-sponsor of the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act, which empowers the United States to deny human rights abusers and also those corrupt officials entry into the United States and access to our financial institutions. Following him, we'll be hearing from Florida's Senator Marco Rubio, also a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who earlier this year on February 27th, the day that the former Deputy Prime Minister of Russia Boris Nemtsov was gunned down right in front of the Kremlin. Senator Rubio introduced legislation that would designate the street in front of the Russian embassy as Boris Nemtsov Plaza in honor of the former deputy prime minister and opposition leader. The senator said, quote, the creation of Boris Nemtsov Plaza would permanently remind Putin's regime and the Russian people that their dissident views live on, and the defenders of liberty will not be silenced. And then we will hear from Vladimir Karamuzra, who is known to everyone in this room and out of this room, whose life has been twice threatened. He was in Russia just again recently, and he was there traveling to several Russian cities to present a documentary on Boris Nemtsov. He abruptly became ill, was hospitalized. His friends, families, those of us in this room fear that he was targeted with poison. And I have to say, for all of us who know him and have worked with him, he's a man of courage. He's a, a person who has strength of convictions, deep convictions, and a very fervent desire to see a democratic Russia where fundamental freedoms are protected. Vladimir is vice chair of Open Russia Movement and also chairman of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom. And we're very honored that he is able to be here with us today. I also want to recognize his wife, Yevgenia, who also is here, who's also truly a person of courage as well in this, in this fight. So 
Without further ado, please join me in a very vigorous applause for these very three distinguished speakers. Senator Cardin. Uh, Madam Ambassador, first of all, thank you very much for that very generous and kind introduction. It really is a pleasure to be back to the Atlantic Council, uh, particularly to be here with my colleague and friend, uh, Senator Rubio, one of the real uh, great leaders in the United States Senate on so many issues, but today on human rights, there's not a greater champion. Uh, I, I serve with him on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I must tell you, I am so proud to serve on the committee with him. Uh, he raises at the, uh, to everyone who comes before us the, the critical questions on support uh, for basic human rights. So, Senator Rubio, it's a pleasure to be with you as always, and thank you for your championship on these issues. Uh, but to my friend Vladimir, um, the two of us, Senator Rubio and I, we speak out, but we know that we're safe. You have the courage uh, that is incredible on behalf of the Russian people and the world community. And we thank you, we thank your wife. What you do is an inspiration to all of us and it keeps us, um, it gives us the energy to pursue these causes here in the United States. So thank you for being the person that you are, uh, an inspiration. To, I see also uh, Congressman Slattery, my former colleagues. Nice to see you, that, that you're here in the audience and it's good to be with so many friends. When, when the history of America is written about this period of time, I believe it will speak very strongly about America's greatness. And it won't be America's greatness for its military power. It'll be America's greatness in promoting universal goals. The goals of good governance, anti-corruption, the goals of supporting human rights, uh, of speaking out on behalf of democratic institutions, and it was America's strength that brought down the grip of the Soviet Union and liberated Central and Eastern Europe. That's what's going to be, I think, the, the key to how we are perceived historically uh, as to what we did during this particular time. And we saw the power of those ideas. We saw the power of those ideas this past weekend when the Russians took to the streets to protest against their corrupt government. They were doing what my dear friend John Lewis said. I, John and I came to the Congress at the same time, and he's an inspiration to me as uh, a living legend as to his, his fight on civil rights. He says, some people, sometimes people just have to speak out. They have to raise their voices. They've got to move their feet. And we saw that happen in Russia this past weekend, where thousands turned out to say, no, uh, we want a government that reflects the people of Russia, not a corrupt government. And, and, and that action will bring about a change in Russia. Russia will return to its greatness of a country that respects the rights of its citizens. And Vladimir's actions is helping bringing that day a little bit sooner than it otherwise would be. Human rights are not a Western imposition, but a Russian demand. And that's what we are trying to promote. This is not about the Russian people. It's about Mr. Putin and his corrupt system that we are fighting. Uh, this is not a new idea. In 1975, uh, the European community, along with the United States, came together with the 1975 Helsinki Final Accords. Uh, I've been active with the Helsinki Commission since my election to Congress many years ago. It was a concept that pointed out that we have a right to, ins to, to expect the countries will adhere not only to military security and economic security, 
but the basic human rights. And that's not just an internal matter. All the signatories to the Helsinki have a right to challenge the commitments being adhered to by any member state, including their commitment to basic human rights. Russia is violating those commitments every single day in so many different ways. If you're a journalist in, in Russia, uh, you know that you cannot operate with, with safety. You know that your lives are at risk. If you're in opposition, you know that you better watch your back, as we've seen assassination after assassination and intimidation after intimidation. If you're an NGO, you know you're going to be labeled an undesirable foreign organization, even though you are there to promote uh, global issues. You know that corruption in the judicial system, corruption is called the lubricant of the Putin regime. Uh, it has uh, enabled Mr. Putin to carry out his autocratic procedures and, his, and his, the way that he operates. The election system itself is fraud, guaranteeing that the results will be what Mr. Putin wants. Minorities are not safe, whether they are LGBT community, whether they're ethnic minorities, whether they're migrants, all are in jeopardy in today's Putin's Russia. That needs to change. The question is, why should we be concerned? Well, there's several reasons. First, this type of, of human rights violations, these type of corruption, lead to instability in regimes and will uh, make our world less safe. And secondly, we've seen that Mr. Putin's ready to attack America. He did attack America. That's not even being disputed anymore, I even think, by the president. But Mr. Putin, uh, Mr. Putin attacked us attacked our free election system. There, there, uh, Mr. Putin's active in Europe. He was active in Montenegro with an active coup. He was active, he's active now in Germany and in, uh, in France, trying to influence those elections. He's trying to bring down our way of government to create more space so he can expand his influence, his type of leadership uh, in Europe and around the world. We cannot allow uh, that type of, of gap to exist uh, we need to protect democratic institutions. So what should Congress do? What should we do in order to stop that? Well, one thing we've already done is pass the Sergei Magnitsky Law, which makes it clear that those that are participating in this type of conduct, we are not going to reward them by allowing them to visit our country and their assets and our banking system. And today, there are 44 individuals that are currently listed under the Magnitsky Law. And I want to thank Tom, Tom Molinowski for his incredible leadership uh, on this issue and, and so many other issues, uh, both in government and out of government, in helping us get this uh, achieved. But there's more that we can do. And I, along with 19 of my colleagues, have filed the uh, Countering Russia Hostilities Act. I want to thank Senator Rubio, one of the, the leaders on this legislation. And it deals with the current challenges that Russia is uh, is, is presenting to us. Russia, yes, is uh, violating basic human rights of its citizens. It's also attacking us, as they did in our free elections. Uh, they also are, are interfering with the sovereignty of other countries. Obviously, we all know what they did in Ukraine with, with Crimea and eastern Ukraine, also in Moldova, Georgia. Uh, they are threatening uh, our, a lot of the European countries that have Russian-speaking uh, populations. We need to make it clear to Russia that that is not acceptable. Sanctions are affecting Russia. 
so we can strengthen the sanction regime against Russia. And the legislation that we have filed will do that. And it goes into many areas that we can strengthen by going into the energy sector, going into how they finance their sovereign debt, how they deal with privatization. We can strengthen the resolve against Russia and our European allies understand the importance of this. We need to work with Europe. But there's a second part of this bill which is equally important, if not more important. It, de it defines an, a an effort with our European allies to fight the Russia propaganda so that we can sophisticatedly use all of our countries together for a strategy to counter the lies that Russia is doing in order to, to cause instability in so many countries around the world. And it develops uh, in a democracy initiative similar to a security initiative that we have under NATO to protect the democratic institutions of Europe. They're under attack. We should share information. I've met with the Baltic leaders this, this week, and they said, that's great, we should do that. We have a plan, but we haven't coordinated it with Europe. We should coordinate it between the United States and Europe, a plan to protect our democratic institutions from the types of attacks we're seeing from Russia. It's not just taking cyber information and using it to compromise elections. It's also false uh, news and using false news uh, as we've never seen before. We need to work together, and we also need to pass legislation that Senator Rubio has been very actively engaged with me on, and that is the Syrian war crimes. M Mr. Putin is committing war crimes in Syria. He is uh, using humanitarian targets as a way of advancing his support for Assad, and that, need, that type of conduct needs to be held accountable. Let me just uh, conclude by uh, uh, quoting a person who I have a great deal of respect for, and that's Vladimir. Vladimir testified before our committee in, in 2015, and he said then that he did not ask that the United States come to the support of Russia. He wasn't asking for that. He wasn't asking for our economic or military support. What he was asking us to do is not to make it easier for Mr. Putin to carry out his ideals. Don't give him credibility. Don't acknowledge what he's doing is right. Just the opposite. Stand strong on U.S. global principles, because that's what the Russian people need. They need America to be clear, strong, about the values that are universal, that have made us the great nation that we are. I want you to know, Vladimir, that you have our commitment that we're going to do just that that we're going to stand up for the values of America. We're going to stand up for why this nation is the great nation it is. We're going to stand up to our Helsinki commitments, and we're going to stand strong with the people of Russia. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Senator Cardin for his kind words uh, and uh, for his introduction here today to you. He has indeed been a partner in many of these issues that face us, so much so that in the hallways of the Senate when I'm approached by the press and they ask me, well, can you comment on your, the, the bill you're doing with Senator Cardin? I start, start getting, which one? Uh, we've worked on so many of these issues that are so critically important and it truly is an honor uh, to work with him on these. And, and at the outset, I excuse myself, I've already told Vladimir, I think Senator Cardin has the same issue. We, in addition to a 10 o'clock vote in the Senate, uh, have two important hearings going on at the same time on two committees I'm a member of. One is the Foreign Relations Committee, which Senator Cardin is the ranking member on, on the general topic of America's engagement in the world. And then the Senate Intelligence Committee, 
has uh, public hearings today on a topic that, um, well, I think you know what it's on. And uh, so we'll need to get there on time. But uh, I also want to thank the Atlantic Council for hosting this event, uh, the state of human rights in Putin's Russia. And I don't quarrel with the title. I understand the point. But um, it's not Putin's Russia. It's Russian's Russia. Vladimir Putin happens to have control of the government there today. But Russia is not Vladimir Putin. Russia is a ancient, proud culture and tradition embedded in its people. Vladimir Putin just happens to be a tyrant that today controls its government. But um, I thank you for inviting me to participate in this event. And I also, of course, am incredibly proud to be here with Vladimir Karamurza, who you all know well, and I'm going to have a chance to, and the honor to introduce him shortly. Uh, when we talk about people around the world who risk their lives in the name of freedom, Vladimir is an example of just how true this is. And uh, his brave fight for democracy and freedom in his country is truly an inspiration. Um, we have an award in America called the Profiles in Courage, and it's largely given to someone who took political risk because you might have lost an election or you took on some nasty criticism in the press for doing something. And I understand, from relatively speaking, that is courage in the, in the American political system. Real courage is, incredible level of courage is knowing that uh, your position on politics could have you killed, exiled, or both, and, um, and poisoned not once but twice. So I'm honored to be here with him today. The state of human rights under Vladimir Putin in Russia has, of course, long been on a severe decline. This deterioration has only accelerated in recent years as Putin and his cronies have cracked down on civil society, the media, anyone critical of the Russian government. When times are tough in Russia, as they, of course, are now, this happens, uh, and this is what happens there, uh, an abysmal human rights situation that becomes even worse. We have seen over the last number of years, Vladimir Putin's critics mysteriously poisoned, many occasions, on multiple occasions, thrown out of windows, murdered. All this just to see her alone, and we're only in March. Vladimir Karamurza recently survived, of course, his second, his second apparent poisoning attempt. The government has implemented draconian laws attempting to bar public dissent just this weekend. We watched as thousands of pr predominantly very young Russians took to the streets to protest corruption within the Putin government to make clear that the people of Russia, what they want is a transparent government that respects their voices in shaping their future. So what was the response of the Putin government? They arrested and detained hundreds of people. This is only the latest incident that reminds us of how critical it is that the United States stands with the Russian people in their fight against a brutal, corrupt, and repressive regime. This behavior by the Putin regime is nothing new. In 2015, Russian authorities began implementing a 2012 law that places any advocacy group that accepts foreign funding on a list as foreign agents. Many non-governmental organizations either spent resources defending themselves against these attacks and labels of being a foreign agent, or they simply closed. Each year, he tightens his grip on the country as he tries to mask the abuses against his own people with aggression outside of Russia. Globally, Putin has made clear his intention on the world stage. He wants to establish spheres of influence in Europe and now the Middle East. And what that has meant is him aligning with the most brutal tyrants and regimes in the world to undermine not just America's, the peaceful nations of the world's interests, and in the process to perpetuate war crimes. 
He's actively working to drive a wedge between Western allies and within Western institutions such as NATO and the European Union. He directly interferes in nations looking to further align themselves with democratic values and with the United States. We should be under no false illusions. Putin's dreams of restoring what he sees as the days of the Russian Empire are what drives him in these goals. And it's an important thing to remind us that Russia, as I said, is a nation and a people that should be very, very proud of its history, should be very optimistic about its future given the chance, and has so much to contribute to the world. It does not need a tyrant in order to achieve these things. We all have read and have heard and will continue to hear in the weeks and months to come about Putin's efforts to meddle in the elections of our democratic allies in Europe, just as he attempted to influence our own elections here in the United States last year. In the Middle East, he's engaged in a bloody military campaign in Syria, partnering with Iran and with the Assad regime. He claims to be fighting ISIS, but it's clear that their efforts have deliberately targeted civilians. They've blocked the provision of food and medicine, as well as efforts by the United Nations to end the suffering of the Syrian people. He's worked with Assad and has inflicted thousands of civilian deaths and injuries and contributed to the refugee crisis, as even more refugees flee the ever-increasing instability. All this chaos makes it, of course, easier for the world to overlook the ongoing abuses of the Putin regime against his own people. But we cannot allow that. And that's why it's important for us to have gathered here today to renew our commitment to the cause of human rights in Russia and to remind people like Vladimir and others, brave, and other brave democracy activists, that we truly do stand with them, that we will use every tool at our disposal to hold Putin accountable, and that we will not allow the brave acts of people like Boris Nemtsov and others to have been in vain. The most brutal reality of the human rights situation in Russia is that critics of the Putin regime end up being targeted, or worse, as I said earlier, they die. Last month was the two-year anniversary of the assassination of Mr. Nemtsov. He was murdered on a bridge in Moscow in plain sight of the Kremlin. That was two years ago. No one's been held to account. We must continue to call for justice and honor these brave individuals in Russia who stand up to Putin as cronies. That's why on the anniversary of his assassination, I introduced a bill to rename the street in front of the Russian embassy, Boris Nemtsov Plaza. If you go to my Twitter account this morning, you will see that we've taken the liberty to use Photoshop or some other app, I'm sure it's Photoshop, but um, to actually show you what it's going to look like on the day that we achieve that. Some may ask, what impact is this going to have? Well, as Vladimir eloquently put in the Washington Post recently, it will remind Putin's regime that they are on the wrong side of history. And I believe it will stand as a symbol to the Russian people that these dissidents' voices live on and that defenders of liberty will not be silenced. As Vladimir told me a few moments ago, the current regime in Russia will be angry about the naming of that street. But hopefully a future democratic government in Russia will be proud that the street in front of their embassy bears the name Boris Nemtsov. As the new administration now continues to shape its foreign policy and its national security strategy, I truly believe it's critical for them to include human rights and democracy as core elements of any broader engagement with any country in the world. And Russia is a perfect example of why this is true. I'm proud to have joined Senator, Senator Cardin in introducing comprehensive sanctions on Putin that will target his regime's cyber attacks, aggression, destabilizing activities in the United States and against our allies. Additionally, the Sergei Magnitsky Rule of Law Accountability Act is one valuable and critical tool that the United States 
has to address human rights abuses by Vladimir Putin. We also need to continue adding individuals to this list and holding those complicit in human rights abuses directly accountable. We should also consider new measures to target the state-sanctioned corruption at the top of the Putin government, the corruption that brought thousands of Russians out into the streets this past weekend. These young Russians realize that their country has a huge opportunity to join the rest of the world, to embrace democratic values and the respect for the rule of law and to protect the human rights of all their citizens. Sadly, Russia's current leader has chosen a path of aggression and instability. His actions in the region, in his own country, pose a national security threat to the United States and undermine our interests and the interests of all freedom-loving people abroad. As long as he continues to choose down, to go down this path, we must choose to strengthen the relationship with our allies in the region and with the Russian people and to support them as they confront these aggressions. Our country, the United States of America, must stand with the Russian people in their fight for freedom. Now it is truly my honor to introduce Vladimir Karamurza, who is here with us today. After surviving an apparent attempt to poison him last month, the second time, as I said earlier, in recent years that this has happened, he has made Russia's future and the cause of promoting civil society and democracy in Russia the work of his life. And despite being a target, he continues that work undeterred and as passionate as ever. Vladimir, you are an inspiring example to all of us here in the United States, and I believe to the Russian people, to people everywhere. And it's my honor to introduce you to those who are present here today and those who may be watching from home. Ladies and gentlemen, Vladimir Karamurza. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And I want to thank, first of all, the Atlantic Council for hosting and organizing this uh, very important discussion and for the opportunity to participate in it. And I'm especially honored uh, and very, very humbled to be speaking after two such distinguished leaders on global democracy and human rights in the United States Senate from two different sides of the aisle, as it should be. Uh, and I want to take this opportunity to thank Senator Marco Rubio and Senator Ben Cardin for their work and for their commitment to the principles that are so often forgotten and overlooked in this age of realpolitik, but that are so important to so many people. Thank you. It seems there should be little new to say about the state of human rights in Russia after 17 years of Vladimir Putin's rule. Um, and yet there always is, and there's never a shortage of news or discussions on the subject. It has now been that long, 17 years, since that famous question was asked at the World Economic Forum at Davos, who is Mr. Putin? Um, and in fact, to those who were paying attention and noticing the early signs, um, Mr. Putin provided the answer very early on, actually before it was even asked in Davos, before he became president of Russia. I often think back to one particular day, December the 20th, 1999. Mr. Putin was still prime minister. It was the last couple of weeks of Boris Yeltsin's presidency. And December 20, of course, is the day of the Czechist, uh, the day of the annual commemoration, astonishingly, 
uh, of the founding of the Bolshevik secret police in 1917, still officially marked in Russia. They'll have a centennial this year. I'm sure they're going to have a lavish celebration in December. And on that day, Mr. Putin did two things. In the morning, he unveiled the memorial plaque to his mentor, Yuri Andropov, the longtime Soviet KGB chairman, best known for establishing a special directorate within the KGB aimed at targeting and suppressing dissent, the fifth chief directorate, and also for authorizing the practice of punitive psychiatry when dissidents were declared mentally insane and committed to psychiatric hospitals. And that same evening, he went to a gathering of KGB veterans for the Chakiz Day, and he addressed them and he told them publicly this in front of TV cameras with a smile on his face. He said, I can report to you that a group of FSB officers sent to work undercover in the government of the Russian Federation is fulfilling its mission. And there were still some of the time who thought this was a quaint joke. Of course, every single thing Mr. Putin and his regime have done since then has been fully in line with that promise and with that mission. The suppression and silencing of independent media, the consistent and uh, continuous rigging of elections, uh, the crackdowns on the freedom of assembly, the blacklisting of NGOs, the revival of politically motivated imprisonment. We now have 100 political prisoners in our country. This is according to Memorial, the, hum the leading human rights group. Um, and by the way, just to compare, in 1975, when Andrei Sakharov wrote his uh, Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, he listed by name 126 political prisoners in the Soviet Union. Now, that wasn't an exhaustive list. These are just the people he knew of, but probably this one is not exhaustive either. And we can definitely see that the numbers are becoming at least comparable. That is the height of the Brezhnev Andropov era, and that was, of course, the Soviet Union, uh, which was twice as big as Russia in terms of population. And these political prisoners of today include opposition activists and their family members, such as Sergei Odaltsov and Oleg Navalny. They include regular citizens jailed for participating in peaceful street demonstrations, uh, such as under the Bolotnaya Square case. They include Ukrainians arrested after the annexation of Crimea, uh, including the filmmaker Alexei Tsov, as well as Alexei Pichugin, the last remaining hostage of the Yukos case that saw Russia's largest oil company dismantled and effectively seized by the government, and its CEO, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, imprisoned for more than a decade for having the tenacity to support opposition parties and civil society groups. Now, of course, imprisoning its political opponents carries some risks for the regime as well, especially for its image. I mean, we live in, in the information age, after all, in the age of new technologies, in the age of growing importance of international public opinion. And political prisoners can actually sometimes turn the tables and use proceedings against them to expose the regime in their public statements and courts by continuing their struggles from behind bars, as so many people have, both in the Soviet times and today, by continuing to take a stand, even while being imprisoned. Um, I can tell you there's not much of a stand you can take when you're lying on the floor, uh, struggling to take a breath, unable to move, feeling your heart racing away and your whole body just giving up one organ after another and then spend weeks in a coma hooked up to tubes and life support. I've had to do this twice now in the last two years, both times in Moscow, uh, both times as a result of an undefined toxin. That's what the medical diagnosis said. And both times doctors assessed my chance of survival at about 5%. So I really mean this when I say that I'm very happy to be here with you today. And uh, also very grateful and also very, very fortunate. Many of our colleagues and friends have not been that fortunate. They have not had 5%. Boris Nemtsov didn't have 1% when they put five bullets in his back on that bridge 200 yards from the Kremlin. The leader of the Russian opposition 
former Deputy Prime Minister, the most prominent opponent of Vladimir Putin. And two years on, there is total impunity for those who had ordered and organized the killing. Not identified, not apprehended. If you can kill the leader of the opposition in front of the Kremlin and get away with it, I think it becomes pretty meaningless to talk about the state of human rights or any other kind of human rights abuses. But I want to talk also today about the other side of the story, about what is happening despite the repressions and the crackdowns and the threats. Last Sunday, tens of thousands of people went out to the streets across Russia to say no to the pervasive government corruption, to the impunity for this corruption, to the authoritarian rule, to the lack of accountability, and frankly, to, against the arrogance of the same small group of people who has held power in our country now for 17 years. Most of those rallies were, quote unquote, unauthorized, in violation of the Russian constitution, of course, which guarantees the freedom of assembly in Article 31. But nevertheless, local authorities went to great lengths to say that these rallies are unsanctioned, unauthorized, illegal. And indeed, in many places, including in Moscow, protesters were met by riot police and by the National Guard, which, by the way, was set up a couple of years ago by Putin with the exact purpose of putting down uh, opposition rallies. And yet the people still came out across the country. And what was most striking about these demonstrations was the scale and the composition. This was the most widespread opposition action, I think, since the early 1990s, since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Bigger even than the winter of protest that we had five years ago following the rigged parliamentary elections in 2011. The rallies were bigger in Moscow that time, but it wasn't as geographically widespread. This time it was 82 towns and cities across Russia, large and small, across 11 time zones, east to west, Vladivostok to Kaliningrad. And it was, of course, striking uh, about because of who participated in the protests. The vast majority of those who came out to the streets of Russia last Sunday were young people, university students, high school kids in many cases, people are in their 20s, early 30s, many in their teens. This is the Putin generation. These are the people certainly raised, in many cases born under Vladimir Putin's regime. The people who have never known any other political reality, who don't know what it's like to have free elections, a pluralistic parliament or independent television, for whom the 1990s is something out of a history textbook, who have watched the same face on television screens for their entire lives, and in fact who have long stopped looking at those television screens. This is the generation that trusts Twitter and YouTube much more than it trusts Russia One or any other Kremlin-controlled national television channel. And it is this new generation that is increasingly growing to realize that the Putin regime is robbing them, not just literally, in terms of the massive corruption, which again was the immediate reason for the protests, but also is robbing them, the young generation of Russians, of their prospects and of their future. And there's really not much Mr. Putin can do about that, apart from, for now, the National Guard and riot police. The day after these protests took place, I was asked by a journalist uh, whether I was surprised. And I have to admit I was surprised about the scale. Uh, about just how widespread and geographically diverse this was. But I was not surprised about the participation because uh, I've seen these people. Over the last three years, since we have relaunched Open Russia, first as a pro-democracy NGO 
and later as a fully-fledged pro-democracy movement, uh, I have traveled across the country, across the regions. Uh, I have to be honest, I haven't made it as far as Vladivostok, but Kaliningrad to Irkutsk, from the Baltic to the Baikal. And we've been holding events across the country, public events, uh, to try to maintain and keep that space for public discussion in our country that's been increasingly shrunk and, and squeezed and, and attacked. Uh, you know, public lectures, seminars, roundtables, uh, debates, film screenings and such. And every time, by the way, or almost every time, the authorities try to sabotage and prevent and stop our events from taking place by bogus bomb threats. Or, you know, the police arrives and orders a mandatory evacuation. They switch off electricity in the building, sometimes on the entire block, and so on and so forth. But the people refuse to leave. And we've never had an event canceled. We, and we went and looked for another place to hold it if we had to. Uh, we've held a, a debate in a swimming pool once in Novosibirsk. We've had events in cafes, in the streets. My, one of my favorite was a couple of years ago, we had an event in St. Petersburg with Stanislav Belkovsky, prominent Russian political analyst. Many of you know him. And after, I think, 11 or 12 locations uh, rejected uh, you know, us trying to rent or lease uh, a hall or a room, we just said, fine, OK, we'll just do it outside on the street. And this was St. Petersburg. This was in the spring, so it's pretty cold. But that was, that was fine. And there were hundreds of people. And we, uh, took a, we just took a sound system, a loudspeaker. And we were standing there. And Belkovsky began reading out poetry. He decided to have a poetic theme to the event. I mean, this is St. Petersburg, the cultural capital of Russia. And um, I remember this was one of the, this was definitely one of the best events we had. There, there was Stanislav Belkovsky holding the loudspeaker, reading poems from Akhmatova and Mandelstam. And about 100 yards from him, uh, there was a squadron of police. And there was a police colonel in full uniform holding exactly the same loudspeaker um, and pointed at us. And while Belkovsky was reciting poetry, uh, the police colonel was reciting articles of the criminal code that we were supposedly breaking by taking part in this demonstration. Can I ask for a um, glass of water on the bottle? Sorry, excuse me. And so every time we held our events, and the people didn't leave, uh, and they came and they participated. And, and I've seen them. And um, I've seen how their growing self-awareness as citizens and their interest, including their interest in civic participation, became stronger than their sense of fear. And that was really hopeful. And in fact, most of our work at Open Russia is directed at this new generation, the new generation of democratic activists in Russia. These are the faces of a future post-Putin Russia. The Russia that we want to see based on the rule of law, based on democratic institutions, based on respect for human rights. And it's the Russia that we will continue to work for. Mr. Putin and his regime would like the whole world, certainly the West, certainly the United States, to think that Russia is just about him and his regime. In fact, one of his closest aides, Vyacheslav Alorin, uh, was recently on record saying, there is no Russia if there is no Putin. That's a direct quote. And apart from being deeply offensive, in my view, this is also patently not true. And I think we all saw that on display last Sunday across the country. Because Russia is so much more diverse, so much bigger, so much different 
and frankly so much better than that face that we've all been looking at for the past 17 years. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much uh, for those inspiring remarks. I'd like to ask the rest of our panelists, including yourself, to just join us here on stage for a discussion. Volodya. Vladimir. Sorry to <laughs> Thank you. So uh, I just want to also want to thank uh, Senators Carter and Senators Rubio and Ambassador Dobryansky for their remarks earlier um, in our conversation. I'm Alina Polyakova. I'm the Director of Research for Europe and Eurasia here at the Atlantic Council. And it's really an honor and a pleasure uh, to host this distinguished panel who are here with us today for this very important and timely event. We certainly uh, we're planning this uh, particular event. Uh, did not anticipate the protests that took place uh, across Russia this past weekend, uh, but of course that makes it so much more timely. And um, I'm absolutely thrilled and, and very happy to see Vladimir with us today for many reasons. Uh, I won't introduce him again. I think both senators and the ambassador have done a wonderful job, but I think I speak for all of us here at the Atlantic Council when I say that we admire you a great deal for your courage and your incredible perseverance and persistence in the fight for the freedom of your people. So thank you so much for being with us. And then to my left, I have Mr. Carl Gershman, who is the president of the National Endowment for Democracy. The National Endowment for Democracy has been the primary vehicle for supporting pro-democratic civil society in fledgling democracies of the former Soviet Union and elsewhere in the world. And we are grateful for your work as well. Thank you for joining us. And then last but certainly not least, I have Mr. Tomasz Malinowski, Tom. Uh, he is the former Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor at the US Department of State. He also served as the Washington Director for Human Rights Watch uh, and various posts at the State Department, including policy planning staff before that. And Tom has been, I think, the, the leading voice on human rights, particularly in Russia, uh, rest of Central and Eastern Europe. And we really appreciate the hard work that you've done for us on the service of this country. So thank you. And I want to start off the conversation with some of the uh, points that you already brought up, uh, Vladimir. You talked about the demonstrations and who was there and the belief you have in the future of Russia because of how widespread and how uh, highly participatory these demonstrations were. And you raised an interesting point that I'd like to ask you a bit more about. The people who were on the streets in almost 100 Russian cities uh, from west to east were very young. They were basically, you could say, raised by Putin himself. Uh, and so in your view, uh, from what you know about who was there, uh, what were their desires and demands? I know that the demonstrations were started as anti-corruption movement, they were called them by Navalny, but what do they really tell us about the stability of the regime and where the next generation of Russians stands today? 
Thank you for the question, Aline. It's, it's good to be here again. And um, well, the immediate reason for the protest, of course, was the, uh, the anti-corruption drive in the film uh, that was released a couple of weeks ago by Alexei Navalny and his anti-corruption foundation film uh, alleging uh, the mass wealth of current prime minister and former caretaker president Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, it's a billion dollars worth of palaces, mansions, vineyards, yachts, and not just in Russia, by the way. Again, this goes to this point that Senator Cardin raised in his introduction speech about the, the role of the West in sometimes enabling these people. And some of Mr. Medvedev's holdings apparently are in Tuscany. Um, and I've been there, I can vouch that it's a very nice place. Uh, but that's, that was all documented in the film. That film was seen by, um, as of last night, about 13 million people on YouTube. If you watched Russian state TV, you wouldn't know that any of this existed. You wouldn't know who Alexei Navalny was. And of course, needless to say, there was no comment, no official reaction, nothing uh, from the government to any of this. The only reaction was that Dmitry Medvedev banned Alexei Navalny on his Instagram page. That was the only response to the film. And of course, I, I think that was the immediate trigger for the protest. Uh, which, which in, in a way makes it similar to what happened five years ago after the rigged parliamentary elections. People just feel as if the government is wiping its feet on them. Mm -hmm. Everything is so brazen, in your face, and there's no reaction, there is nothing. They don't even feel the need uh, to account for this. And why should they? They haven't had to face a real election in 17 years. They don't have to face scrutiny by independent media. They don't have any checks and balances. They don't have an independent uh, or real parliament that can keep them to control. Why should they be accountable? But this new generation, this young generation, again, the people who've never seen anything except Putin's regime, but they just have this, I don't know, maybe instinctive feeling mm. that they want to be citizens. They don't want to be a placemat on which you wipe your feet on. And I think this, again, was, I and mean, there's this phrase, revolution of dignity, right, that people speak of the events in Ukraine in 2013 and 14. I think the feeling is the same. I think this is, this is a very strong feeling, dignity. I think this goes for all of these. Uh, mass protest against corrupt and authoritarian rule. It was certainly about dignity five years ago after the rigged parliamentary elections and after the Putin-Medvedev Putin castling. Uh, it is certainly about dignity again now. And it's not just about corruption, by the way. That was the immediate reason. Mm -hmm. But if you looked and if you watched all these protests and all these videos from across Russia, and by the way, the only thing I was really upset about over this last weekend is not being there in person. But as you know, I'm, I'm still undergoing rehabilitation, basically, so I'm going to be here for a while now. But um, if, you, if you watch these rallies and the people's speeches and the slogans and the placards, uh, some were about corruption, sure, but people also chanted uh, uh, no war. People also chanted Russia without Putin. Mm -hmm. And the main thing that people chanted was Russia will be free. And I think that's the main message of these protests we saw over the weekend. Yeah. And of course, some of those slogans went back to the earlier protests in Balotne, uh, which didn't include as many young people. So I think that was the interesting thing to observe, that these slogans, you know, uh, Russia without Putin, Russia will be free, are resonating across generations. Uh, and I think that is, is a really important point uh, for all of us to remember that even in places where the grip on power by authoritarians seems to be so strong and so totalitarian, there's always space for protests when people don't feel satisfied with the social contract that they've been forced to by the regime. Absolutely, and they even haven't because they weren't born when that social contract was supposedly made 17 years ago, so it certainly went adults. So they are not in a way bound by it. So Vladimir, thank you. And Carl, I wanna kind of bring you into this conversation as well because the National Endowment for Democracy has worked 
uh, across Central Eastern Europe for many, many decades to promote uh, democratic values and principles. Uh, and you know, it, we're talking about Russia now, but I think in many ways Russia is also has, uh, or particularly Putin, the leader of, of the country, has become a symbol for many uh, illiberal leaders in Central Eastern Europe as well. Uh, and there does seem to be a growing trend towards authoritarianism, uh, spreading from east to west, uh, where other uh, political leaders, heads of state, see themselves and style themselves as uh, illiberal states, quote unquote. Uh, do you see that there's a trend happening across these new democracies that we thought were stable and were moving towards uh, liberal democratic societies? And is there a backlash? And what is, is Putin really the, the symbol that these people are looking to? Well, you know, when you have a, a country that is able to expand its geopolitical influence, that has political consequences. And then you also have um, Russia very deliberately and systematically um, using the information space that exists, not just in Central Europe, but here as well, to uh, not only project their own views, but to undermine uh, the morale uh, and divide uh, the countries in the West. And then you have on top of that the problem of kleptocracy. Um, it's not just stealing from the people, but then it's using the proceeds of that stealing to increase their influence both at home and abroad, and to do it with uh, the help of uh, Western enablers and, in fact, the, uh, the Western financial system. And I, you know, I think we and people in Europe just have to know what we're dealing with. Um, and I don't think we fully realize what we're dealing with. Uh, when Vladimir before was talking about the events on December the 20th, I mean, there were events that took place before then, which, in a sense, are even more eye-opening than what you described on December the 20th. Of course, I'm talking about what happened in September um, with the apartment bombings. And in my view, there's no question as to what happened there. Uh, you know, when the, um, the FSB was discovered to be behind the attempted bombing in Ryazan after the first four bombings, um, and they were using the same materials. Uh, and 293 Russians were killed there. Nobody knew who Putin was before that. How do you get somebody going from 2% popularity and nobody knew who he was, and really representing the FSB, <clears throat> to becoming known by everybody as a savior against you know, Chechen terrorism, which is how they portrayed the apartment bombings, and that's what it was. Um, and he became, you know, uh, he be the, the, the war, in, the second war in Chechnya started, you know, the day after uh, the Ryazan bombing was discovered, so people didn't pay attention to it, and then they eliminated all the people who were trying to write about it, including Litvinenko. So, I mean, we're up against something really very, very serious here, and, um, you know, people in the West have to get over the illusion that, uh, you know, that we're dealing with a normal country. We're not. And, mm -hmm. Uh, we have to protect ourselves more. We also have to deal with our own internal problems. We have very serious internal problems, which, which then a regime like Putin, using the information space, using the, the resources, you know, the stolen resources, can exploit. Uh, we have, you know, it's not just a matter of showing solidarity with people like Vladimir, which we have to do. And I have to say that every time I hear him speak, I realized that he's got a rare voice, really a rare voice, um, and uh, it's so important for the future. Um, but you know, it's 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 
we have to protect ourselves, you know, and I think we're learning that, but we have a long way to go. And I think one of the things you're pointing to is that there, while there is some appeal in you know, strong leadership, authoritarians, uh, that is spreading, I think, across some countries, Central Eastern Europe, I think we have to do our part to expose and undermine the rottenness of that regime and the disservice that it does to the people who have to live in that kind of regime. And, and my sense is, I, you know, this is maybe my typical wishful thinking, but I think this problem is peaking. Um, my hope is that you know, uh, Le Pen is not going to win the election in France, so what happened in the Netherlands. It's beginning to peak. Um, and, uh, but democracy has to revive itself from within uh, if we're to be able to become real allies of, uh, of people like Vladimir. And that was the message, I thought, by the way. Uh, last month, Senator Rubio uh, held a hearing in the mm -hmm. Senate, and uh, Gary Kasparov testified. And I really urge people to look at his, his testimony, because it really was a clarion call to us to recover our will and our awareness. And leadership. Um, so thank you, Carl. You brought up the information space, and I, I want to uh, bring you into the conversation, Tom. Uh, Vladimir, you also mentioned this young generation trusts Facebook and Twitter more so than they, they trust uh, Pierre Canal or other state-sponsored media. And I think this is an important thing to remember, that people have access to information. But at the same time, I think the regime, and not just the Russian regime, but other authoritarian regimes see information as a really danger to their stability. And as a result, we've seen many Western organizations being forced and expelled out of Russia uh, who have tried to support independent media and civil society. Um, so Tom, you were assistant secretary um, in the last administration so until very recently. Uh, given the political climate, the international organizations which supported independent media in Russia are no longer able to operate there. Uh, what else, what can the U.S. actually do to try to support these kinds of democratic movements, uh, independent media in places like Russia and other authoritarian countries? Hmm. Well, I, I, I think there's still a, a great deal that we can do and, and we, um, you know, when uh, Russia made it, when the Russian government made it uh, difficult, if not impossible, for the United States to directly support independent civil society um, inside Russia, which, which um, I think we had a, a number of effective efforts which contributed to the, the deep sense of insecurity that, that uh, Putin uh, felt and continues to feel. I think the, the increase in repression in Russia over the last several years is a sign of the insecurity of the regime. Um, an interesting point that we should always remember, even as we as we look at the the, the strong facade that uh, that Putin projects, that, that un underneath that facade must be a tremendous amount of insecurity. Um, so, you know, we were not uh, we were not able to um, continue to to do a lot of the work inside of Russia that we were doing, uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't uh, work from the outside. Uh, maintain uh, connections uh, to solidarity with um, and direct support uh, for Russian activists, for independent media um, working, uh, working from uh, outside the country. It doesn't mean that we cannot work with Russian-speaking populations in neighboring countries, uh, in Ukraine, in the Baltic states, uh, and, and so forth. Um, in terms of more broadly how we can and should respond to what is happening, though, I, I think 
we, we do have to be brutally honest not only about um, the political uh, developments in Russia over the last several years, but also about political developments inside the United States. Um, when bad things happen in other countries, our um, instinctual response in America is to appeal to our government and particularly to our president to say something and to do something. Um, when I was in the Obama administration, many of you guys came to us, whether it was about Russia or Ukraine or Burma or China or, or any number of places, and you urged us to take a tougher stand, and you were, you were right to do so. Uh, I'm a Democrat. When we had a Bush administration, I didn't much like the Bush administration, but I um, absolutely believed that President Bush thought that the United States should be a force for good in the world. Um, and I was routinely at the State Department and at the National Security Council urging those folks, including Paula, I don't know if she's uh, still in the room, to, to take a stand on this, that, or, uh, or the other. Um, I don't feel that way about um, the current occupant of the White House. And I, I, I think we have to be open about this and, and, and think about what it means. There, there were a number of people this week who criticized President Trump for not calling for the release of Navalny and for not condemning these protests. And I found myself not joining in that criticism. I don't want President Trump to be calling for the release of anti-corruption protesters in Russia. It would be hypocritical for him to do so. From my standpoint, the, the, the thing, he, he, he in many ways represents the thing that some of these young people in Russia were protesting against. Um, he has told us very, very clearly, and we need to listen to what people tell us, that he doesn't really believe that the United States can be or should be a force for good in other countries. We have an America first foreign policy today. And when confronted with evidence of Putin's abuses against his people, his instinct has consistently been to repeat Russian propaganda about the, uh, the lack of moral authority of the United States to condemn anybody else for, uh, for these kinds of actions. Um, basically talking down American democracy by saying that our system is rigged, our system is corrupt, and so forth. Exactly what Russia today says, exactly what Russian diplomats would say to me when I was assistant secretary whenever I tried to push an agenda of, of human rights promotion in Russia. So I, I think what this means for the rest of us is that the traditional model of petitioning the White House for help in these situations has to be replaced by a model in which we all take greater responsibility on our own shoulders. Um, whether the institutions that rep we represent ourselves as citizens or other parts of the US government, other branches, including the Congress. I think the most important thing, for example, that the Congress should do, and the senators alluded to this, um, is to respond to what Russian activists have been asking us to do for years, and that's to make sure that the United States and Western countries cannot be a safe haven for dirty money coming out, out of Russia. There um, have been numerous efforts in the US Congress, for example, to close the loophole that allows uh, Russian oligarchs and many other bad guys around the world to set up anonymous shell companies in the United States, which amazingly is still about as easy in America to do as it is um, in, in the Cayman Islands and the Seychelles and all these other places that we hear about. That has to stop. Um, we can continue and should continue financial support 
to civil society organizations working on human rights in Russia and around the world. We can't do that if the State Department budget is cut by 37%. So folks, if you care about this, you've got to care about that. And our members of Congress have got to ensure not only that that budget request that the administration sent up is rejected, but that we have an increase for the programs that are even in greater demand today when civil society is under attack in so many countries. My former bureau, the Human Rights Bureau at the State Department, will do its job. They will, um, with whatever resources they are given, do everything it possibly can to support these brave people in Russia and around the world. Our duty is to make sure they get those resources mm -hmm. despite the very, very clear intention of the president to deny them. Um, so I would focus on those two things. Thank you, Tom. Uh, I will say that it seems that Congress has taken a much stronger and assertive role in uh, pushing the administration in the right direction. So I think uh, giving us some time, we will see what happens. Uh, the fact that we had a senior Democratic senator and a Republican senator here with us today, I think is a very strong signal that there is uh, a bipartisan support uh, for dem democracy, our values and our principles, and promoting those values and principles abroad. Uh, and I think I would like to see more of that as well. I know, Vladimir, you have been very active um, in trying to nudge our Congress in the right direction. And so thank you for doing that as well. And I think, Tom, uh, you're certainly right about that. But at the same time, my sense is, um, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think while Vladimir paints, uh, despite everything, I think a very optimistic picture uh, of the future that uh, things will change in places like Russia. Uh, that perhaps in Central Eastern Europe, this wave of authoritarian populism is hitting its peak and it will decline. Uh, that these are temporary movements that will not last in the long term. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think, Tom, you kind of put in a little note of maybe cynicism or pessimism into, into this picture. Um, that you know, if we don't have civic engagement, political participation from the citizenry, we are not going to see these changes take place. So I guess my question to you is, you know, how does democracy get its mojo back in this uh, political climate? Um, how do you get people to, uh, who are becoming disenchanted with these ideas to re-engage? Well, um, I'm, I'm actually not that pessimistic. Um, I, I, I was trying to honestly point to a very, very deep problem that we have to confront. Um, but I also think that this is a clarifying moment for a lot of people. Um, I think that there was a lot of complacency in this country and in Western Europe and in many parts of the world about the um, uh, inevitability of democratic institutions uh, lasting forever. Um, a lot of complacency um, about um, uh, the, the, the strength and vitality of our own democracy here in the United States, uh, and also about the threat to our democracy posed by autocracy in countries like Russia. Um, even in the State Department, you know, I have to say we were deeply, deeply concerned, um, extremely nervous about the impact that things like fake news and dirty money might have on democracy in Moldova. We weren't really thinking about here <laughs> or France or, or Germany. And, and now we know. Um, and I think it, it, it may well be that, that every generation or two, 
um, there needs to be a shock to the system to scare people straight and to show us that A, we have to work our asses off to protect democracy in, in our own country, that, that it's a never-ending struggle, and B, that if America is not a force for good in the world, that if we are not um, using our moral influence and strength to stand with those who share our values, really, really bad things happen. Our grandparents' generation had that shock in World War II, um, which was the event that defeated the first America First movement in this country. It was not a, uh, an eloquent counter-argument made by people in panel discussions that defeated it. It was Pearl Harbor. And we now have a political crisis in this country and in the Western world that I think is scaring a lot of people straight. And you know, I saw a lot of young progressives at the, uh, at the rallies after the Trump administration um, waving signs about Putin. Um, you know, and, and funny plays on his name and, and clever slogans and all kinds of things. And, you know, you wouldn't have seen that level of interest mm -hmm. four or five years ago among young progressives in this country about what is happening to people like Vladimir and the, the assassination of Boris Nemtsov. Folks get now the connection between that and what is happening mm. closer to home. Our job is to sustain that awareness and to help translate it into a political agenda, a policy agenda, that over the next several years will win out uh, in, in this country. And I think we can do that. So Vladimir and Carl, I want to get your reflections to what Tom just laid out. Uh, are we at a turning point? Are these protests a turning point for Russia that we're seeing young people engaged in politics and civil participation. Um, you know, are we going through a turning point in other parts of Central Eastern Europe, Carl? What, what is your take on that? I do believe that we are in a crisis. Whether it's a turning point, I don't know yet. Um, but, a, you know, a, a crisis does present an opportunity. I think people are realizing we have a problem and we have to address that problem. I'm not sure I agree with Tom that arguments are not important. You need just just the uh, the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor and 9/11 to to sort of make people really wake up. I think it's important now for people who care about the values of freedom and democracy to come together and to begin a campaign to argue for these values, to reaffirm the first principles of democracy, which are being not only ignored, but also demeaned um, and exploited. In other words, the, uh, Putin is actually using the openness of our society to undermine the very principles of openness. And I think it's important, which has not been done by any political leaders. It's not just um, this administration. There are no democratic political leaders who are really strongly affirming the values and the principles of democracy. And I think it's going to have to start with intellectuals, with civil society. And I think it can be helped by people like Vladimir uh, and people who are in the struggle for freedom because they don't take it for granted. They're not jaded you know, by the problems that we have. And we have very real problems. I think you know, as important in many ways as the Navalny video about Medvedev and the corruption <clears throat> was this nine-minute video that came out of Bryansk. Uh, there's a school in Bryansk, which is about 350 miles southwest of Moscow. And one of the students in this high school had been trying to rally students to participate 
in the protests last Sunday, and he was picked up by the police. And the principal of the school, and this is all on a video because one of the students shot the video, the principal of the school then started lecturing to the, to the kids, to the students, about true patriotism and why they were supporting you know, chaos and division and war. And she said, you know, what do you want? And, they, and, and this, one of the students said, we want justice. She said, well, what do you mean by justice? And I'll quote, he said, justice is when the authorities care about their people. This is a high school student in a small town, outside, you know, 350 miles from Moscow, where they care about their people and not just about themselves, when they care about ordinary citizens and not about their millions of, do of dollars. Many people want to live in a free state in a free country. This is coming from a high school student. Now, when you have voices like that, that then you know, speak up, are prepared to take risks, um, go into the streets when they know what the risks are, and you have articulate voices in high school, I think they can help rally people here. We have to find ways, new ways of connecting uh, people. The internet can be very, very helpful. Watching the videos can be very helpful. We have to think about ways of doing that. Mm -hmm. And then people who think about these issues, people who shape opinion, they have to begin to formulate arguments mm -hmm. as to how to respond to the propaganda coming out of uh, coming out of Moscow and to reaffirm the first principles that are at the core of our democracy and that unite us across the political divisions. We have a new struggle. We have a battle of ideas that we have to wage and we have to do it with effectiveness. We have to do it with courage and intelligence and dedication. So ideas still matter, but so ideas does matter fundamentally. Ideas matter fundamentally. We're, the whole idea of freedom. This is what these young kids are fighting for, the idea of freedom and, and everything that is related to the idea. Of, that's what Vladimir is giving his life for. Vladimir. Uh, I, just, I just want to add that, first of all, I urge everyone to, to watch and read that exchange in Bryansk. It's been, as I believe it's been translated into English and, and it's been posted on many websites because, I mean, it's really is astonishing. These are not political activists. Yeah. These are 15-year-old kids in a small provincial town in the south of Russia. And they're arguing back, they're talking back, and this has been going on all over the place, by the way, not just in schools, but universities. After these protests last Sunday, there are many cases across the country, especially in universities. There was, a, uh, there was one of such cases in St. Petersburg, one in Tomsk in Siberia, a traditional kind of university town with liberal traditions. And same pattern, the professors, the principals, the whoever, are gathering the classes, and in some cases, uh, the whole, you know, a whole course, a whole class in university went to these protests. And so they're gathering these youngsters and saying, what did you do this? How much were you paid from Washington? This, they're actually saying this. About, yeah. I, look, we're not making these things up. They're actually seriously, people who are supposed to be professors, you know, standing there, adults with a serious face, asking how much money you got from Washington. I mean, they're, they're really... Peskov said they were bribed. Peskov said they were bribed. Yeah. Take, he's the Putin spokesman, said they were bribed to take part yeah, in Yeah, but he's, I mean, that's his job to say these things. I'm not sure if he believes it, but those people look like they did, and that's really what's amazing. But it's really the clash of generations, mm -hmm. and if you just see those exchanges and listen to what these kids, they're kids, listen to what they're saying, that, that is amazing. And that is really so heartening for us, by the way. And uh, Alina, to your question, I think, yes, this is, this is mm -hmm. a turning point. And primarily, it's a turning point because of the demographics. Uh, again, because of, because of the age. Because this is the, this is the tomorrow of Russia, mm -hmm. these people. These are the faces of tomorrow. And when you have, you know, let's say you have protests caused by particular grievances, right, or just general political protests, you can satisfy some of the protesters maybe by granting concessions on particular issues. You can scare 
uh, other people off. This is what they did, by the way, five years ago, after the big winter of protests, 2011 and 12. In the first few days when they were really scared, and I remember those few days, when many of us thought this is it, actually, and it turns out we were a little over-optimistic, but uh, for a few days they really were scared, and they began, if you remember those yeah. few days, handing out one concession after another. They restored gubernatorial elections by, uh, immediately, a few days after Balotnay happened. And just a year and a half, I think, before that, or a year before that, Mr. Medvedev uh, was on the record saying, we will not restore gubernatorial elections in Russia in 100 years. These are his words. As soon as 100,000 people stood on Balotna Square, across from the Kremlin, it took him five minutes to restore them, not 100 years. Uh, they also allowed registration of opposition parties. So there were some concessions. Then, of course, there was a crackdown with the Balotna case in May of 2012, uh, when police just beat up peaceful protesters and, and arrested dozens. And many people are still, some people are still in prison five years on for taking part in those protests. So you can do that. You can grant concessions to some. You can scare or pressure as somebody else. But when it's a whole generation mm -hmm. that's fed up with you, there's not much you can do. Uh, we just had uh, our own movement, Open Russia, just uh, put up a poster just this morning online uh, in preparation for the next uh, wave of protests, which are being planned for mm -hmm. the end of April. And this poster it doesn't, doesn't have a, it's not a sophisticated message, just a picture of Vladimir Putin uh, with his mouth covered and just one word, Nadayil, fed up. These are the people who have lived their whole lives with him. They have not seen anything Smart. except him. Uh, that exchange in Bryansk that Carl referred to, mm -hmm. uh, that principle that was saying, you know, why are you unhappy? Uh, why do you want this? Why, why don't you like Putin and United Russia? And one of the questions she asked, I don't know if she thought about it before she asked it, but she, but she said, well, who was better? Which, which government that you lived under was better? Well, they never lived under another government. How would they know? All they know is him. The people who will come to vote next March in the Russian presidential election or election will have been born under Putin. Yeah. The people who will turn 18 become voters and will come to vote. They will be born under him. This is how long he's been in power. He's been in power as long as Brezhnev. Yes. So when it's a whole new generation that is simply fed up with seeing one face on their TV screens every single day, there's nothing you can do about that. So yes, this is a turning point. I really believe this. Thank you. And I think your comments are so, I hope they're prescient, first of all. Uh, but second of all, you know, it goes back to the point I think Tom was also making that this is an insecure regime. Uh, totalitarian regimes or authoritarian regimes are stable until they're not. And I think that is the point we have to remember when we're thinking about the threats posed by, by Russia to us and how we can have a disruptive strategy uh, against the regimes like that that threaten our national security interests here in the United States and also the national security interests of our allies in Europe. Uh, I want to leave a little bit of time for questions from the audience who I'm sure are eager to ask a question. Uh, but Vladimir, before we do that, I have to ask you, um, are you planning on going back after all of this? Yes, I do want to go back. I'm gonna, this time I'm going to be a little more deferential to what the doctors are saying. Last time I went back almost immediately after the first poisoning. I could hardly walk, but I went back because I, I felt that was important. I want to go back this time, and I will go back. But this time I'm going to take some time to get completely restored. Uh, I think I, I look better than I feel. There's still a way to go uh, for recovery. And, um, well, I might as well say it. The doctor said in Moscow that because I've had this twice in two years, uh, obviously pretty serious blows, they said if you have a third time, that'll be the last one. So they really advised me to get 100% as, or as much as I can of my health back before I go back. So I think I'll heed their advice this time, uh, be a little bit more obedient to what they have to say. But yes, I do want to go back, and I will go back. Because I think it's... I think it's, I think our work is important. 
I think what we do is important. Well, judging from their reaction, I think they also think what we do is important. And I don't think we have a moral right, frankly, even before all those people mm -hmm. who went out to protest last Sunday, despite the riot police, despite the batons, despite the National Guard. I think we have responsibility before those people to continue, not to hide, not to run away, not to give up. Uh, there's nothing more, I think, than the Kremlin would like us to do than to give up. Uh, and uh, we're not going to give them that. Thank you. Uh, those are very powerful words. And um, like I said, I think all of us in this room are here because we admire you for your courage um, and, and the courage of your family as well. So uh, let me take a couple of questions. I'm going to take three questions uh, all at the same time because we don't have that much time left. There'll be mics going around. Please introduce yourself and ask a question, not a lecture. Um, so Mr. Lodl, please, Ambassador. Uh, Jan Lodl from the Atlantic Council. Thank you all very much for being here. Uh, the biggest uh, action that the West has taken, the United States has led, Germany's gone along, have been economic sanctions trying to pressure Russia, and then we've had the oil price drops. And I noticed uh, just recently uh, with ruble devaluation, uh, Russia's uh, notional GDP has fallen below South Korea now. So there's some real impact there. Uh, so uh, the question I would have for the panel is, is this uh, a viable strategy uh, as the, the main uh, tool uh, to try to bring about change uh, uh, along the lines that we'd all like to see? Thank you. Uh, let me take two more questions. Uh, so the young gentleman in this row, in the glasses, yes. Uh, my name is Briggs Burton from the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. My question is whether or not there, there is any value in coordination between the human rights activist movements in, in Russia and in China, in Cuba, and in countries across the world, and, and trying to really globalize the human rights movement, even in those individual instances. Thank you. And I saw a question here, a gentleman in the fourth row. So Ra from American University. So question about uh, persecution of religious minorities in Russia. We know that uh, several groups are persecuted. Uh, they're called non-traditional religious uh, minorities. One of them is Jehovah's Witnesses. They are, uh, the Minister of Justice is going to file, uh, file actually a claim to ban these groups. So we want to know what kind of pr uh, consequences would bring to, to, to freedom, religious freedom in Russia. What's the position point of, uh, what's the opposition view of this? Okay, thank, thank you. So a uh, question on sanctions being the right policy to bring about change, whether it should be coordination, global movement coordination, and then religious freedoms. So who wants to take one of those? Well, let me take the first two, and I'll, maybe Tom might want to say something about the third. Um, there are a lot of things that we can do. I think the sanctions that we now have are minimal, absolutely minimal. Um, but, you know, we have to protect ourselves and protect the information space. I think there are issues having to do with military support, you know, that not allowing these planes to be bombing in Syria and in Ukraine. But, you know, but probably the most effective thing we could do is to really cut off access to our investment system for the stolen resources. I mean, there's this organized uh, crime and corruption reporting project, which just came out with um, a report uh, that 
the Guardian reported on, which had $20 billion, you know, documented $20 billion of stolen money. It could be as high as $80 billion. The video that um, Navalny did about Medvedev had $1 billion. <laughs> but it's much, much more than that. It's, these are enormous sums of money. Um, and you know, out, as, no matter how much we speak about human rights and defend human rights, our system is also underwriting these authoritarian systems by taking the money, laundering it, protecting it. There are all sorts of enablers who do that. This is well documented. And if our Congress and, and political system, along with you know, Europe, can, can really require um, that if anybody wants to invest money, they cannot do it anonymously with these anonymous companies shell banks and so forth, to really tighten it up and have transparency and know who's investing and not to accept stolen money. I think that would do more than anything else to, uh, to affect uh, this, the, the power and influence of these uh, autocratic countries. Regarding uh, coordination, um, a lot of coordination does take place already and there is something that we provide the Secretariat for at the National Endowment for Democracy called the World Movement for Democracy. Brings together democracy activists. There also can be coordination at the human rights level. I know that at the end of May, Vladimir is going to be at the meeting in Oslo of the Oslo Freedom Forum, which provides a kind of coordination for human rights activists. Uh, UN Watch in Geneva has an annual human rights meeting, which does something like that. Uh, you know, I, I, I strongly support that, and I think you now have a tool uh, with the internet um, and social media to try to strengthen that coordination and make it regular. And then it should also involve uh, co common actions, coordinated actions, to try to free political prisoners. And I think the United States has done the least on your first point in terms of legislation, Congress, uh, on the kleptocracy question. And I think there's a great deal more that could be done beyond uh, the, the relatively weak sanctions. It's that an emerging issue, I think. It's an emerging issue, and I think there's a readiness now to really take this issue seriously. I call attention to the Kleptocracy Initiative at another think tank in Washington, the Hudson Institute, I, uh, the work of Charles Davidson, Oliver Bullock, uh, Ben Judah. All these people are becoming really uh, real specialists who are documenting uh, the problem here. Thank you. And uh, Vladimir, Tom, do you want to respond to those questions? Yeah. Um, I'll. I'll say something on the sanctions point. I, it, <clears throat> I think it is, it's extremely important that the sanctions uh, be sustained. And I think there's, um, there's a little complacency about that right now, because I think we all assume that given the, the scrutiny um, into uh, the allegations of connections between the Trump campaign and Russia, it will be hard for the administration to um, to do a grand bargain uh, with Putin in which the sanctions uh, go away. Um, but that said, sanctions to be maintained, to, to remain effective, don't just need to remain on the books. They have to be enforced very vigorously. And I think we have to watch very, very carefully to ensure that um, the, the Treasury and State Departments in this administration actually do the work uh, to continually renew the sanctions. They're supposed to be a maintenance package. Uh, that the, the Treasury Department under normal circumstances would do uh, in July that would add names and entities uh, to the current sanctions list. Uh, we need to make sure that happens. We need to make sure that we are lobbying uh, our European partners, particularly some of the, um, uh, the, the countries that are more under Putin's influence like, right now, like, uh, like Hungary, 
uh, to vote for the renewal of the EU sanctions when they come up for review uh, also uh, in July. All that said, though, uh, let's remember the sanctions are not, these sanctions were not meant as a response to repression inside Russia. Um, they were not intended to try to change Russia uh, internally. They are a response to Russian aggression in Ukraine uh, and the seizure of, uh, of Crimea. Um, and uh, were those issues to be resolved somehow, the sanctions would necessarily um, go away. Um, so we need to keep our focus, if we're concerned about these issues, again, on the, the broader set of anti-kleptocracy uh, measures that our Congress has within its power uh, to put into place. And my, my hope is that as the, uh, the, the, the Senate investigation into uh, Russian interference in our election and possible collusion with the administration continues that there, there will be a legislative agenda that goes along with that as members ask the question, how can we better protect ourselves um, against that kind of interference in the future, whether it comes from Russia or China or any other country? And I think if they ask that question, the natural answer w will be, as I think all of us have said, to tighten the rules uh, against um, uh, the anonymous laundering uh, of money uh, in our financial and sadly as we have seen in our political system. We know how to do that. We need the political will. Absolutely. And Thank you. I'll uh, let you quickly address the questions that were asked on. First of all, on religious freedom, very simply, we believe in what the Russian Constitution says and that guarantees the freedom of religion to all citizens of our country as well as the international obligations that we've undertaken as members of the OSCE and the Council of Europe. Uh, on the cooperation between different human rights movements. I think that's a very good idea because many of the issues are the same, the challenges are the same, some of the ways of dealing with them are the same. And I, in fact, there is this cooperation going on, but I think it's also especially important to have cooperation uh, with countries that have experienced very similar situations to what we have and also the countries that are closer to us. And of course, Ukraine is the main one here. And, uh, I think, and I've said it many times, that I think the primary motivation for Putin's aggression against Ukraine uh, that began in 2014 was not the geopolitics or spheres of influence. It was because an analogy that was frankly too uncomfortable mm -hmm. and too close to call for Mr. Putin. When he saw Mr. Yanukovych boarding that plane in Kharkov and fleeing as hundreds of thousands of people were standing on the streets of Kiev. A corrupt authoritarian strongman forced out of power by mass protests in Ukraine a country so similar to Russia culturally, historically, traditionally, in terms of religion, heritage, language, uh, this was really too uncomfortable for him. And I think this is why also we need to be cooperating. And in fact, we are. I mean, there are very close links between the pro-democracy movements and the human rights groups in Russia and Ukraine have been for many years. And on the sanctions, that is a very important question, and thank you for it. First of all, the biggest sanctions and the most hitting sanctions against the Russian people were introduced by Vladimir Putin in the summer of 2014 when he imposed a blanket ban on food imports from the European Union, North America, and other countries, which has, by the way, contributed massively to the food inflation in Russia in the last few years. And is especially affecting, uh, I mean, particularly regions, if you think about, you know, St. Petersburg or Pskov or Kaliningrad, yeah. where it's a 45-minute drive to the Polish border. Obviously, all of their food supplies, or 90% of it was from the European Union. They're surrounded by it. And now they have to fly stuff from Turkey and, and from China. And you imagine how that contributes to the prices. And, and it's funny, I was in Kaliningrad last year or the year before and after the sanctions were introduced. And you walk on the street and if you just 
go like inside the courtyards, you'll have these cars that people, you know, open the boot and they have all these all these all this food they just brought from across the border in Poland. This, I this is something I remember from my childhood in the late Soviet times. I have it again. So these are the toughest sanctions introduced. By, by the way, the Kremlin propaganda tries to portray them uh, as sanctions imposed by the West, which is a lie. But on, in, as far as Western sanctions go, um, and I would like to offer the Russian perspective on this, mm -hmm. the, the opposition Russian perspective on this. We are against sanctions on Russia. We're against sanctions on the Russian people. And this is a very important point for us. And I had the opportunity to testify in the Senate yesterday. There was an appropriation subcommittee hearing. Uh, about the situation in Russia and the possible ways forward. And the chairman of the subcommittee is Lindsey Graham, who's the lead sponsor of the, of the Sanctions Act that was introduced. Uh, and I said to him um, that it's very important to be careful about the language. It's essential that the US is not seen as seeking to punish the Russian people for the actions of a regime that they can either unseat in a free election, because we don't have any, and cannot hold to account through independent media or a legitimate parliament, because we don't have any either. And this is very important. This goes back to the same point that I mentioned earlier, not equating Russia and the Putin regime. And I think the most effective sanctions, and frankly, the most principled sanctions, uh, are the individual ones, mm -hmm. the targeted sanctions that the Magnitsky Act introduced more than four years ago. And we had Senator Ben Cardin, the chief sponsor of the Magnitsky Act, speak yes. here today. And when the Magnitsky Act was passed, uh, I remember we were sitting, Boris Nemtsov and I were sitting in the House Visitors Gallery, in the House of Representatives. It was November the 16th, 2012, the third anniversary of Sergei Magnitsky's death in prison. And we were sitting there as members of Congress were voting. It was a massive majority in both houses. And Boris Nemtsov called it the most pro-Russian law in the history of any foreign parliament. And it really is, because it targets those people who abuse the rights of Russian citizens, of us, and who plunder the money stolen from the Russian people, from Russian taxpayers. And there have now been 44 people sanctions, sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act. And the last bunch of names came in mid-January while the former administration was still in place. Just in time. Just in time. And I have to say uh, that this was a very important day when that came because the person who headed that list uh, of the latest editions, and I see Thomas smiling because we had many conversations about this in the last few years, uh, was a guy called General Alexander Bastrykin the head of the top law enforcement body, the investigative committee. This is a person who was basically tailor-made for the Magnitsky Act. He was in charge, so this is supposedly the top law enforcement official, and he was in charge of all the politically motivated prosecutions of opposition activists. He was in charge of the Balotne case. He was in charge of the Yukos mm -hmm. case. Uh, he was in charge of Navalny's case, the first one, Kirov Lies. Uh, and a few years ago, he personally took a leading independent journalist in Russia from Novaya Gazeta to a forest near Moscow and threatened him with murder and laughed and said, I'm going to be the one in charge of the investigation of this, so don't worry about it. He actually admitted it. It's not in dispute. It's not allegedly or not. He said it. He said sorry afterwards as well. But I think that's not enough, frankly. And he was put on that list. And he's the most high-ranking Kremlin official who was put on the list. And we really hope that despite everything, this law continues to be implemented. And it's very heartening to see other countries beginning to follow the US example. It has taken a few years. And the first European Union country to follow suit was Estonia. Not one of the grand countries of old Europe, but a tiny former Soviet Republic on the border with the Pskov region. It was the first European Union country to have the tenacity to say, no, we're going to put a block to these human rights abuses and these corrupt crooks. And now the United Kingdom is in the process of adopting this. And that would really be potentially a game changer, because that, of course, has been a long favored destination. 
And I think it's those types of sanctions, not against Russia, not against the Russian people, but against those specific individuals in and around Putin's regime who engage in human rights abuse, who engage in corruption, and yet who have used for years Western countries and Western financial system as havens to send their families, to stash their money, to buy properties, real estates, yachts, palaces, vineyards, as we found out. And they should stop. And I think these are the types of sanctions that are both right in principle and also the most effective. And while we were watching with, with Boris, the House passing the Magnitsky Law, he also said, and I remember this very clearly, he said, once we have the rule of law and a democratic system of government again in Russia, I will be the first one, he said it so he, about himself, he said, I'll be the first one to go back to the US and argue for a repeal of the Magnitsky Act, hmm. because we won't need it anymore. We'll have our own system of the rule of law, and we'll be able to, to bring our own scoundrels to justice. Uh, unfortunately, that day is not yet here, and it's important to carry on. But of course, it won't be Boris Nemtsov, but I think some of us, hopefully, if we live to that day, will be coming here and arguing for a repeal. But again, that's not, that day is not here. Well, thanks to Senator Cardin, we now have a global Magnitsky Act. So the legacy of this, of this brave Russian lawyer who sacrificed his life for this cause is now a law that enables us to hold human rights violators and corrupt officials accountable throughout the world. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to repeal that, even if Russia becomes a full-fledged democracy. Thanks for reminding we'll us about that, law. Tom. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, letting me on that note, uh, we have to r- unfortunately wrap up, but the young people will, will carry on. The very young people that were on the streets in Moscow just this last weekend. So thank you again, Vladimir, for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Carl. And, and thank you to our audience. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists.